I think I think you make opportunities. I, I really do believe that you open the door for yourself. I think that it's it's very easy to say nothing is out there. I can't do it. Everyone says no. Everyone says no, but there's always somebody who'll say yes. It is me once again, Heath Armstrong, with the Archapreneur Now podcast. This is episode 76, and I am here with you to fist pump, to bring the heat, to do everything I can to bring creativity to your day and everybody around you. So share the love, fist pump, let everybody see how enthusiastic you are to be alive, to smile, to be part of this amazing world of creativity because enthusiasm is infectious and you will be surprised how much that little bit of energy will transfer to others around you. And my creative guest today is none other than the amazingly talented Mr. Michael Klein out of New York, a curator, an author, an artist advocate, and he has been at the center, I mean the center of contemporary art activity since 1977. He was the owner of the Michael Klein Gallery in New York in 83 to 97, and we get into his story in this interview about how he became Microsoft's very first curator of its newly instituted art collection. Yeah, he picked up, he moved cold turkey to Seattle to take this opportunity to to decorate these these workplaces with this amazing company called Microsoft, which obviously we know how big that is today. He's also an accomplished writer, lecturer, and educator. I mean, his, his credentials go on and on. But in this interview, we really get into some of the most amazing things, some real-world things and advice that are going to hit you home. Uh, we get into habits for artists and the importance. We get into curating at Microsoft, how he got there, asking for creative opportunities, getting out there and putting yourself out there and ask for opportunities because that makes all the difference in the world. You'll find out how he got himself into every situation he wanted to be in just by asking. We get into Michael's morning routines and why those are so important. Creating Microsoft Arts Gallery, the process of it once he got there. And then we're going to talk about support for artists and and how amazingly powerful this can be. Uh, Artists need to be absolutely honest with themselves, and this is a point that Michael really touches on. I hope that all of you enjoy this as much as I do once again. All the show notes, artsynow.com forward slash 76. I really, really appreciate everybody out there that has taken the time to leave me a review on iTunes. It means so much to me. The show is consistently staying in the top 200 under business careers, and I cannot say thank you enough to all of you. If anybody else wants to help me out, just get on there. You can go to artsynow.com forward slash iTunes. It'll take you right there. Or if you just want to open iTunes and search for The Entrepreneur Now, it'll bring it up as well. But thank you all once again for that. And I really, really think that you guys are going to get a little bit excited for this interview. Again, all the show notes, artsynow.com forward slash 76 and Here we go!
Come on, everybody, let me hear that beat. Come on, come on, everybody, let me hear that stickity stickity rickety dickety beat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, here we go now. Who wants to get a little bit funky out there? Who wants to get a little creative out there, huh? Yeah. Which one of you wants to get a little bit artsy now? Well, I do. I do. Well, then get on with your bad selves. Yeah. If your stinky little ears hang low, you better wobble them all the way to the front and get them to the center of your speakers because our guest today has been all over the creative world involved in so many different creative endeavors that your head just might explode. From directing his own art gallery to leading Microsoft's art collection to running the little gallery on the little dot gallery, which is very clever. He's bringing his experience to help change the world through writing, through lecturing, through curating, in art education. A skidamarinkity-dinkity-dink, a skidamarinkity-doo-hoo. All the way from New York, Michael Klein, you are the entrepreneur now. What is happening, sir? Uh, it's, it's a cold and windy day in New York City, and I'm very happy to be speaking with you. <laughs> I'm super pumped to have you on the show, man. It, it, you've got such a, a huge history uh, through every different thing you've been involved with, and I could go on and on with, with your credentials, and, and I mean, literally, I have a whole list right here, but I'm going to let you cover what you think is the most important first. Um, can you start by telling us a little bit of a background about yourself, how you got to where you are now? And then I really want to start diving into how you got started and the troubles that you had doing that so that our sure. listeners who really actually are in that position themselves can get some good value and some sure. fist pump through this episode. Sure. Um, I, I was born and raised in New York City, and I my fascination with art started out when I was very, very, very young. Uh, my parents weren't rich, and the Sunday ritual was to go from the west side where we had an apartment uh, to take a walk across Central Park and go to the Metropolitan Museum. So at a very young age, I was sort of wheeled through gallery after gallery, mm. and I sort of got used to looking at pictures, and I got fascinated with pictures. Um, and I would be able to distinguish, you know, painting styles and different painters. And th then over the years, I just kept being interested in art. And when I was in high school, we had moved to Long Island, and I had an art teacher who um, took us on several field trips. And the most notable trip was a, sh was a trip in 1969 to the Whitney Biennial. And at the Biennial, I saw an installation by Robert Morris and another one by Dan Flavin, and I flipped out. <laughs> and I thought, this is so interesting. This is something I want to find out more about. And I slowly... I don't know, spent a lot of time in libraries and collecting art magazines and looking at books and looking at pictures and really didn't know how I was going to get involved, but I knew that it's something I was really, really interested in. Um, I ended up at NYU to study art history, 
And then one day a friend of mine uh, told me that she had just applied for the Whitney Independent Study Program and my ears perked up and I said, what the hell's that? <laughs> and she said, oh, you know, you work at the Whitney and you don't have to take classes and it's very cool and blah, blah, blah. And before she was finished explaining the whole thing, I was on the Uptown Madison Avenue bus heading to the Whitney where I introduced myself to the head of the education program or uh, the man who was running the program. I said, I really want to be in this program. I really, really need this. And he took me in. Um, I started working at the Whitney, um, I guess this is 1974. And the independent study group was divided between artists and art historians. And everyone was assigned a tutor. And I worked with Hilton Kramer. Um, we worked uh, on some exhibitions. We then, this particular group of people, uh, then launched the opening of the first downtown branch museum. This is in the early, in the late 70s or mid 70s rather, where corporate America was beginning to discover the value of art. So they started to collaborate with museums and we opened the downtown branch museum and I worked there. And then, um, I got asked by a friend of mine in the education program if I wanted to give tours. And so on the weekends, I would give tours to the public and earned a lot of pocket cash. And after that, what did I do after that? Then I graduated and I decided I wanted to get a master's in art history. And I went to my professor who called his old professor. And I got into the Williams program, which is a great graduate program up in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And I spent two years there. And then while I was there, I decided I want to become a museum curator. And I applied for a internship at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. I'd also decided and gotten very interested in contemporary art, having met a couple of artists and started to go to exhibitions. Anyway, long story short, I ended up at the Walker and worked there for two years and then decided to come back to New York to get my Ph.D., and at the same time, I needed a job. So everyone said, oh, you'll never get a job in New York. There are no jobs. It's the 70s. There are no jobs available. The economy is bad, blah, blah, blah. Everyone said no. And I went to an artist friend of mine and said, you know, I'm looking for a job in New York. I'm going to move back from uh, Minneapolis, and I want to start school. And she said, oh, my gallery is looking for a director. And I went and had an appointment with the owner. And he asked me, have you ever sold art before? And I said, Sure. And I'd never sold anything. <laughs> and um, so I started as director of Max Protege Gallery and worked for him for four and a half years and brought in a very interesting artists and sculptors and developed the program for the gallery. And then in 1982, I said, it's enough. And I left and went off on my own. Um, and within a few years, I was running my own uh, consulting firm. I was an agent for a number of artists. I think at one point we were up to kind of 15. And then I finally opened a gallery officially in Soho and ran that until 1997. And I turned 45 and decided I need a sabbatical. So I closed the gallery and, um, and it was the first time I actually wasn't working. And as a result of not working, I got deadly sick. And I ended up recuperating at a friend's house in, New, in uh, Montclair, New Jersey. And while I was there, one afternoon, a dear friend of mine and client called me up and said, I just heard they're looking for a curator at Microsoft. And I said, really? <laughs> I said, oh, that's out in Seattle. She said, that's right. And she said, I think you would be great. So um, I said, well, I should apply. 
And she said, yes, you should. And I had just been on the phone with an editor at Art in America because I was working on reviews for them. And she had just showed me how to cut and paste. This was a big, you know, this is 1990s. This is the beginning of email. So I learned how to cut and paste my resume and I sent it off to the people. And two weeks later, I got a call that they would like to set up an interview and interview me over the phone. And we did that. And then two weeks after that, I was called and said, we'd like you to come out to Seattle. We'd like to interview you. So I went out to Seattle and did my interviews. And then two weeks after that, I got another call saying, you're a finalist. (laughs) I was totally shocked. And they said, we'd like you to come out and do a presentation. And I said, fine. And at the time, I was organizing an exhibition on on American landscape painting, contemporary American landscape painting, something I've always been very interested in. Anyway, I went out there and gave a lecture on that and um, seemed to have wowed everybody. And two weeks after that, I got a call saying, we want you. And uh, then I moved lock, stock, and barrel to Seattle, having never been west of, well, I'd lived in Minneapolis, but, you know, I'd never been really far west for a long period of time. And we moved, we packed up everything, we packed up the pets, we packed up the furniture, we packed everything and moved west. And it was, uh, it was quite remarkable. And I spent, you know, eight years now building their collection and developing an education program. And so that's, uh, that was sort of... Uh, what, what blows part- my mind about most of that story, Michael, is when you, even back in the beginning, like when you, when you first found out about uh, Whitney and you just went and literally asked and told them that you wanted it this bad and they let you in. And then, then people said, well, it's the late seventies. It's the early eighties. There's no jobs. You can't get a job, but then you just keep talking to people and asking and tell them what you want and opportunities keep arising. I think, I think you make opportunities. I, I really do believe that you open the door for yourself. I think that it's, it's very easy to say nothing is out there. I can't do it. Everyone says no, everyone says no, but there's always somebody who'll say yes. Yeah, and I'm a I'm a firm believer. If you want it badly enough, you'll get it. If there's a will, there's a way. If you you know uh, you know the the worst thing is not to ask. What's the worst thing that someone can say? No, I mean yeah. that no. And then years ago, years ago, a dealer friend of mine said, looked at me, and we were having I don't know we were something had happened, and I missed out on a deal that didn't go through. And she said, Michael, no is not yes. <laughs> and it stayed with me because. People change their minds. You know, one day they don't have the money, the next day they do. One day they really want the painting and then they think, well, maybe I'll think about it. And then they turn around and go, I have to have it. So, you know, if you you can't give up. I mean, I I was raised um, with a family that was very supportive and, you know, said you can do what you want to do. And I had these really grand and crazy ideas of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to live my life and where I wanted to go. And I thought, I'm just going to go and do it. And there, you know, there are always obstacles. I mean, people are going to come forward and say, oh, I have this, or this is my fate in life, or this is this, and I don't have a lot of money, or I'm this, or I'm that. You know, I, I, if you look at the world, you see people get ahead because they want to. Yeah. And yes, luck has, has you know, luck is there as well. And sometimes, um, you know, it's, it, you're, you're lucky, and it's a lucky situation. It's a lucky break. Um, I could have have to create those opportunities for luck to arise at the same time, you know, you have to put yourself out there, you know, and, and I can tell you that, you know, I can tell you the missed opportunity. After graduate school, I had professor Sam Hunter, who just recently passed away, a brilliant art historian and museum director. And he came up to me at the, at the end of my, my years at Williams. And he said, I want you to come to Princeton and study with me. 
And I looked at him square in the face and said, no, thanks. I want to go back to New York City. You know, that was the dumbest thing I'd ever done. And, um, you know, because I would have been working with him and, you know, I never thought about, well, his collections and his contacts and he wrote for various publishers and he knows a lot of people in the field. None of that I could figure out. I was all fixated on just, I want to be living back in New York City. I don't want to be in Princeton. So, you know, but I was young and young and dumb. Yeah, I, mean, I think we, we we absolutely become what we think about, though. And it's anything that you can make progress towards is if you believe in yourself. And if you do talk to people and like just like you did, and you go out there and ask, opportunities do arise. I mean, it's insane. It happens for everybody who actually wants it to happen. Uh, there's basically a zero percent chance that you're going to fail if you keep trying. You, I, I totally agree. You know, and it may not be exactly what you imagined. But you also have to deal with what life is going to offer you and what opportunities are going to be there. It may not be the best situation. Uh, you know, I was living in Seattle. I didn't know a whole lot of people, but I loved the job. Mm-hmm. And I loved the opportunities that I had to learn and to grow and to develop. I'd never worked for a major corporation before. I learned a whole new language. I learned how to manage people. I learned all sorts of stuff. Um, and there were times where I was pretty lonely in Seattle because my family was in the East and my partner and I had split up and so on and so forth. But, you know, I got through it and I continued, met people. But, you know, it, it was you make, you do and create. And I think that's the most important thing is that you, we have the ability to create our lives. And, you know, I, I remember reading that about Louise Nevelson. She said, you know, I created my life as an artist and I don't see any difference between whether you create your life as a writer or an actor or uh, a business person, whatever it is, you are creating that. You are sort of investing and inventing as you go along. Yeah, create yourself. Create yourself every single I think day. It's re- I think it's really important. You know, and it also takes an enormous amount of courage. And there are days where it just absolutely sucks. You know, believe me, there are days where I wake up going, gee, I should have gone to law school like my father told me. <laughs> um, you know, but, uh, there, you know, then something happens, the phone rings or I get an email. It's like, oh, wow, that's kind of interesting. Or I meet somebody or I'm reconnected with somebody or something just comes out of the blue. Um, you know, I've reconnected recently with a dealer from Italy that I hadn't spoken to in 30 years. Mm-hmm. And suddenly we're totally involved in a whole bunch of projects. Or, um, you know, it, it, it ju- it's putting yourself out there and, and being out there that I think is incredibly important. And uh, if, we, if we had a starving artist out there listening, because I know we have a, quite a few, actually. Yeah. We get different creative entrepreneurs and sure. musicians. And they were just extremely afraid of, of getting out there, making the leap. They have a job that they really don't like. They'll do it. You know, it pays the bills. But ideally, they'd like to build something else on the side or build a life where they can actually work through passion and creativity. Uh, besides getting over the fear and putting yourself out there and reaching out to people, what what, do, what would you what kind of advice would you give them to get started, and what direction should they go in if they want to be able to create a life that they love? Well, um, you know, one of the things that I remember um, in, in some in some discussion we had years ago at Microsoft on management, you know, where do you start on a project? And basically everyone, the, the, the advisor or the person giving a lecture said, you start at home. You start with your friends. You start with your family. Wh- who can they introduce you to? What doors can they open? It's always amazing to me. I like that. If you, if you start at the basics, at the very beginning, okay, my mom and dad, who do you know? My brothers and sister, who do you know? And suddenly they said, you know what? I went to school with this guy and he now does X, Y, and Z. Or I know somebody who does this thing. Um, they it, Again, it's not that you're going to open the door and just land exactly where you want to be. You have to build it. And you have to build, I'm an 
absolute firm believer in networking. You have to build a network. And over time, you begin to collect people and ideas and thoughts and connections, and you begin to figure out how do you turn this into a livelihood? How do you turn this into you know, a way where you can actually make a living? Maybe you start meeting some other artists and they say, you know, I really like your work. I should introduce you to my dealer. I should introduce you to this collector who loves my work. I think they'd love your work too. Um, I think that you have to get over, and I'm a good friend of mine, painter friend of mine. I'm sort of advising her, you know, getting over the fear, getting over that hump, uh, getting over the, that initial, it's, I'm going to be rejected. Yes, you will be rejected. And that's just the way it is. You develop a slightly thicker skin. And you figure, you know, the person who rejects you now, I always think, you know, if I don't sell something to this collector, three years later, they're going to come back to me and say, you know, you were right and I'm an idiot. And I go, yeah, you're absolutely correct. You know, but, you know, some people listen, some people don't. It takes time. But if you don't take those initial steps, if you don't really try it, um, and, I, and I'm a firm believer that you have something that you have to do every day. It's like writing every day. It's like, yeah. you know, athlete exercises every day. It doesn't have to be all day. It could be an hour. And, the, and the, usually what I do is in the morning I do most of my correspondence. I try to get all my email done, things that I want to respond to and things that I want to get out. And then by the afternoon that frees me up for appointments, going see things, and just, or just having the time to work on some stuff. And I think you have to sort of figure out what's the best way, what's your schedule, how do you work best? And then you get to it and you have to maintain it. Yeah. And for someone like me who, who literally, you know, I've got a day job and then I do all this other stuff on the side where I do websites and I'm learning right. mobile apps and I do this right. podcast and I interview right. people. There's no way for me to be able to do this during the middle of the day. But what I started doing was literally waking up one hour earlier then two hours earlier to the right. point now where I'm actually getting up at 4 a.m. and sure. I write, I read, I meditate, I make the list of the things I want to get done for the day. And that is exactly revolutionized the same thing. everything. I, exa- in my I get life. up at four and I like to read. If I have a writing assignment, I like to write in the morning. That's when my energy is high. Uh, my partner's energy is great at, in the evening. He works all night, and that's what he loves to do. That's where his brain is really active. Yeah. Uh, he writes and, and illustrates children's books. And I'm up at four, walk the dog, have some tea, and I begin to write and plot out the day, what I want to do, what I want to catch up on. But it's a, it's a discipline. And, and the other thing about it is it's enjoyable. Because over time, you begin to see what you've accomplished. And yeah. then you go, wait, you know, I, I didn't think I could do that, but I did it. Or I didn't know that I was going to contact that person, but I did. And, and they had a great response to me. And I need to follow up on that. And, you know, the, as I say in business, the follow-up is the most important thing. Because people then want to hear again from you. And they want to find out more about what you're doing and what's going on. So, yeah, I mean, I think that... Um, you know, it sounds like what you do is all connected to, to this, you know, the whole program. I mean, you and you have it worked out. And I think that's that's the way it has to happen. Oh, it's it's phenomenal. I mean, if you if now I'm to the point where if I literally miss a day, if I have something where I'm on the road and I can't get that stuff done, my whole day gets thrown off. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. it's crazy. You start to realize how much that actually can change and how powerful it can be because you're getting all those things done that you might have not gotten done through every evening of the whole week sure. combined, but Absolutely. you're getting it all done within a couple hours when you first wake up. And then the energy that comes rolling in is insane for the, I mean, well, it's, the energy it's the is amazing. for the rest of the day, you know? And then you don't, you know, then you don't know what's going to come back from it. I mean, that's the interest. You put all this out, you know, energy and effort into the world and you see, okay, what will be the results? And, you know, sometimes there's an immediate result. Sometimes, you know, the ring, it's like that pebble in the pond and you just wait for that, the ring to come closer and closer to the shore. 
um, you know, you, you never know. You can't tell how long the response is going to be. Uh, and, but it eventually, eventually it comes. And, uh, and I think the diligence and I think the determination, I think that, you know, I will probably say that when I was younger, I took more risks, although now I probably take as many risks, but they're a little bit more calculated. Um, but I, you know, I had nothing to lose by asking if I can get into the Whitney program or if I could apply for the Walker, you know, I, I just always felt like if I didn't, somebody else would have it or I would, I would never know. I'd never find out. Yeah. So, um, and, and I think leaping forward, even if it's something that you're not 100% headed over heels from, you can learn from everything. I mean, and you're, you have had so much industry experience. I'm sure you've run into a brick wall a couple of times and you've learned something Oh my God. I still run into brick walls. I just spent, you know, two months working on a deal that just completely fell apart at the 11th and a half hour, you know, and I realized, God, I should have really looked at that. I could have, I could probably could have saved it if I had done X. Um, you know, there's a, a sticker that I have on the refrigerator with, which says, you know, I just want to keep making new mistakes. I don't want to repeat myself, but I want to learn new things. And okay, so now I know I have to do this. Um, I think that you, you will, you know, always come up against the, you know, the wall. Um, and, and again, I think that um, that kind of failure or that kind of obstacle, you know, puts you back in your seat. You go, okay, how do I get around this? What, what, you know, what did I do wrong or where did I go wrong or what did I, what, how do I rethink this? Maybe I'm following the wrong trail or maybe I'm doing this, I'm doing this not right. Um, you know, it, it gives you a time to sort of think that, think and reflect and go, okay, let's, let's try it again. Let's try this. Um, uh, so I, you know, I think that, that the, the obstacles are, are, are really kind of growth spurts. You know, yeah, I, I, I don't think of, that, that you can, you know, you, you can't live life without having obstacles, you know, just, no, just isn't good. It just isn't going to happen. It's like a t-shirt, man. Yeah. So yeah. It's, yeah. It's just, you know, it's just, when you were at Microsoft, for instance, you went there, you didn't think you had a shot at getting it. You did four interviews or whatever it was. You get in there. Um, surely you had to have felt somewhat nervous being such a huge company. How, how did you... I was completely freaked out. Yeah. How did my you manager yourself? came into my office? She said, here is your desktop. We'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that like? I mean, cause you know, it's a huge company. Everybody gets really intrigued uh, by companies like that working there. You get in, you step into such a high position right off the bat. What, what did you do to make sure that you were going to be successful at that? Like what, what, what steps did you put into place? Did you keep doing all the things, all the principles that you had done in your life? Or did you have to, I know you, you mentioned earlier that you learned how to manage teams. Well, I had, that was one of the, I mean, there were several things that I had to quickly learn. One, I had to learn sort of the culture of the company because every company has a culture and how things are done and who's at the, who's in the pecking order. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn that fairly quickly, but all of us have gone to high school. So we pretty much know how to do that. And then um, I had to learn the technology and had to learn, you know, how to deal with the technology because that was going to be an important aspect of what I did. Um, I had to meet people. Um, I had to quickly figure out what our projects were, what, our, what, what was necessary. I had to see where the flaws were. I'm pretty good at doing an assessment. So within probably three months, I figured out what was wrong and what needed to be done and how we were going to turn things around. Um, they had had a collection. It was not really well developed. There were no definitions. There was no mission statement. There was no processes in place. Um, there were a lot of things that were missing. And so 
I was charged with developing a business plan and I had about six months to do that. So I spent a lot of time talking to people and going to look at stuff and just going to look at the collection and making notes and thinking about things. And I then began to make an assessment and developed a plan. Um, and the plan was approved. And then we went into action. Um, one of the things that, you know, we were both developing the collection. We had to de decide what the collection was going to be. You know, what would a company growing like Microsoft, what should they have on the walls? So we had many discussions about that, and we narrowed down what it was going to be. Um, then we figured out what the process was, what our budgets were going to be. Uh, one of the first things I got thrown into was a um, they were building the first conference center on campus. Uh, it was a very large building. I was brought into a meeting with the architects and designers, and you know they were tell explaining the whole thing to me, and they said, well, what do you think we're going to do with the art? And I said... We're going to develop a plan. And they all smiled. And then they left the meeting. And I thought, what is the plan going to be? Uh, and then we started to work on that. And I remember at the very end, as we were, as the building was coming to, uh, as they were finishing the building, there was this very weird, and I had befriended the, the manager of the building as we worked on some ideas of where art would go and what was necessary uh, and the kind of lighting we would need and security, um, there was this one odd space. And I said, what are you going to do with it? And he said, I don't know. We don't have a plan. I said, we need a gallery. He said, fine, let's do a gallery. So suddenly the Microsoft Gallery was born. Literally, it all happened within 15 seconds. <laughs> and then I suddenly said, okay, we've got to develop a program for the gallery. And we started a program, and it continues to today. Uh, there are quarterly exhibitions from the collection, or we borrow stuff. And uh, people use the space for cocktail parties and receptions and, you know, for big wigs when they come to town. And suddenly there was a there was a gallery which hadn't existed before. And I suddenly had to come up with, you know, show ideas every every quarter. Um, and the other part of my job was to develop an education program because the company was growing and had had campuses in different parts of the world. And we wanted everyone to be able to see the art and ex understand the art and read about the art. And um, so I was charged with developing the website. Uh, I knew about as much about developing a website as um, I know about brain surgery. <laughs> and I, you know, and what I usually do at that point is sort of look for people who are art friendly and technologically advanced. And I found a bunch of guys and they said, yeah, we could help you. That would be fun. So, you know, they did their moonlighting and they helped and we developed the website. Um, and, uh, so that was that we got that off the ground. It was a searchable website. So if you were interested in a painting, a particular artist or what was in building such and such, you know, in Dallas or in North Carolina, you could dig it up and look at it and see it and, uh, became a really important part of the collection. We did lectures, we did tours, we did symposiums, uh, we did everything we could to engage the employees and, you know, sort of participating in, in the collection. So, you know, and I had never done any of that for a, a major company, but you try things and you invent things and some things work and other things don't. Yeah. Um, and you get to know, know that you've helped all these employees. I mean, I think creativity is so important. What, what role do you think all of that creativity and, and having the art on the walls and the galleries, how do you think that helped the actual employment uh, there? How do you think it helped people doing their job? 
Well, well uh, you know, it helped in a number of ways. It was very interesting because I would, uh, one of the things that I did, it, for me, it was very important to always hear what the employees were saying. They were kind of the clients. They were the owners of the collection. It was owned by the company, but really they were the ones that the collection was going to sort of educate, entertain, enlighten. Um, and I did a monthly tour. And it was always interesting for me because I got a chance to hear what people knew about art and what they didn't know about art. Um, you know, I mean, how do you how do you look at a painting or how do you look at photographs? There was one engineer who came up to me and said, "I don't know anything about photography." And we spent an afternoon in a photo- looking at a whole bunch of photographs in the collection and explaining how photographs are put together. What's foreground? What's a middle ground? What, how do you know? How does a photographer imagine what he or she is going to present? What are they interested in? So that was a that was a big learning experience. There was another moment I was giving a tour. And one of the gifts that Bill Gates had gotten was four slabs of the Berlin Wall. And I'm talking about the Berlin Wall, and I'm looking at these kids. I'm 50, and they're all in their 20s. And I realize they have no idea what I'm talking about. Because, of course, for them, the Berlin Wall didn't exist anymore. (laughs) So we put together a little program. We put together the video of the wall being built. I mean, suddenly I realized, you know, this was an educational thing that really needed to be that needed to happen because Berlin Wall, I mean, first of all, the technology, you know, there are no walls anymore. The internet goes everywhere. You know, I mean, cell phones, I mean, can you imagine? It's a, it, you know, it doesn't keep, a wall doesn't keep the technology from happening. And, you know, they didn't know the history. They didn't know the location. They didn't know why it was built. They didn't know why it was taken down. So we had to do a program about that, uh, really to enlighten um, the visitor and to enlighten the employees. So there were always things like that that I was learning that had to be developed and had to be taken care of. Uh, and that was, that was very exciting and interesting um, to, to sort of, you know, help, help everyone sort of achieve a kind of knowledge of what was, what was going on in the collection. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. And I know you've had the opportunity to work with and help several artists throughout your career. And I'm just wondering, with, with all the different creative entrepreneurs I talk to, I do get quite a bit of, of artists with maybe some cure curator experience, um, teachers, educators. And I like to always ask them what kind of problems they run into the most with artists that they're helping. Uh, because I think I, I see similarities in it a lot, but with, with all these different artists that you've worked with and writings that you've done and education that you've, you've been a part of, what do you think some of the biggest problems that, that artists that are trying to make it run into and how, how can they, they solve those problems. You know, what areas do they need to look at? I think, I think one of the biggest problems, and this I think is, is I, I don't think it's solvable. I think one of the biggest problems that artists, um, artists are emotional. Artists' egos are huge. Mm-hmm. Um, they are focused on their work. Uh, and it's very hard for them to step back and be objective. And sometimes that's, you know, that's sometimes in business or, you know, as a dealer or whatever, you have to step back and go, okay, am I doing this right? Is this really what I want? Is this, am I going in the right direction? Um, I think that it's very hard when you are deeply entrenched in something that is coming out of the, you know, your heart and soul to be objective, to step back and edit yourself or to criticize yourself or to review what you're doing. Um, I have an artist friend, and I had been watching him post images on Facebook, I'd say for the last three years. And I love what he was doing, and I think that he's taking a nosedive right now. 
and I don't know what to tell him or how to tell him. I'm just watching it. And um, I think at some point, I think he will figure it out because he's a smart guy. Um, you know, I, I, I'm always fascinated to see what people are saying to him on Facebook. It's always complimentary. Gee, I love it. Gee, this. But I'm looking at it sort of a, from a more a bigger picture view, and I'm thinking, you, you know, you're 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 going backwards. You're not going forwards. And you know, yeah. he he might figure it out. He may he may never figure it out. And Do you I think, think he's going backwards because he's posting on Facebook every day, or, or what? What's the problem there? Uh, I, I I think the problem is that he is. Uh, you know, we haven't spoken, so I I, I think the problem is that. He keeps coming into dead ends, and I think that he doesn't know how to sort of expand on some on doors that he's opened. And so I watch what's happening, and I know earlier work, and I feel like he's going backwards rather than again, as I said, forwards. Um, and uh, you know, he's never asked me what do you think or what you know. And if he did, then I would feel comfortable saying, "Here are my here are my thoughts about this." Um, and if that happens, I, I will be happy to say it, but right now I'm not saying a word, but I think so it's reaching very- out to others. I mean, it, in asking opinions, I think can be huge for, for good, uh, objective critiquing. Like, I know that, but I, I, don't mentors. That, I don't think Facebook is the world of objective critiquing. <laughs> Do you know? I oh, think no, absolutely a, I not. Think people are just trying to be nice and friendly and say, you know, say nice things because they don't be a trap. Like- they don't yeah, want to and I, I literally them. just deleted my Facebook uh, a couple weeks ago. Funny, uh, funny enough, because I was, you know, I do this show and I share it all over the internet, and, and it, you know, it was very popular and gotten the first top, you know, five new and noteworthy on right. iTunes for about eight weeks. Right. Right. And you know, you post on Facebook and you see people and you get impressions and there's interaction, but it came to a point of me where it's like, is it worth my time? Right. To get on this Facebook, to set it up, even if I had a VA automating and posting it for mm-hmm. me, it came down to it's not it's not worth it for me. Most of the conversations that come back right. uh, aren't worth having, really. Right. And right. so I shut it all down because there's things more important like family right. and fundamentals and actual real relationships. Sure. And I think that you're right. I mean, it can go south quick like that. Well, I think that he has a lot of friends who want to say nice things and be supportive, but I think sometimes... You have to pull somebody aside saying, you know what, I, I think this is really going, I think you're going to hell in a handbag. But, you know, I, I don't think, I, as I said, I don't think Facebook is the right forum for that. And, um, you know, I think it's, I, I think it's more of a kind of diary of what, what you're up to. Um, I don't think it's really a place for critical dialogue in a, in a way. Um, yeah. I think that people can abuse their criticism and it gets, ends up being kind of name calling, which, you know, I don't, I don't think is necessary. Anyway, so... I think that to come back to the question, I think that um, I think for an artist to be objective, for an artist to step back and look at where they are, what they're doing, and to be honest with themselves, um, I think it's pretty tough. Um, and I think that it is um, it's the struggle all the time, you know, of um, of putting your best work out there and and being able to stand behind it, and and then and and uh, not, um, not to doubt yourself. So, um, but I think it's very, I think it's very difficult to do that because there's always going to be somebody who doesn't like it. There's always going to be somebody who'll say something, um, and you never know what the reasoning is. And, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I think it just, I just think it's tough. 
um, you know, when I publish something, I'm always like, what did you think? Was it great? Did you love it? And it's, yeah, it's okay, Michael. I, you know, I like it. It's fine. But it's, uh, you know, you sort of want a little bit of a pat on the back and kind of, yeah, go, go for it. Uh, it's, it's not always there, but I, I think that that uh, of all the artists I've worked with, I think that's a, an ongoing uh, an ongoing issue um, is that objectivity. Yeah. Well, Michael, if if you could spend a little bit of time, uh, and you got to pick anybody in the world, if you could spend a little bit of time creating something with anybody, it can be from the past or the present. Who do you think that it would be, and what would you create? Well, I adore Leonard Bernstein. And I adore Stephen Sondheim, and I adore Mozart. So I guess I would. Um, what would I like to do with them? I guess. Uh, uh, what would I do? I, it's a really good question. I don't know. I guess I'd like to have dinner with them, <laughs> and figure out and figure out a plot from there. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think. Um, How interesting that would be. I, you know, it's, it was always my, I mean, I just, I just, you know, I, I, I love Bernstein. I, I was addicted as a child to his, uh, in a TV program where he, young people's concerts. And I was always interested in that. And Stephen Sondheim, I think is one of those great geniuses of our, of our time. And Mozart's a genius, you know, the music is amazing. Um, uh, and to, to have all of them to sort of talk about, you know, creating, I don't know, an opera, creating a work. I, I, I know that in my, if I had a chance to start all over again, I probably would want to produce films. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. Uh, set decorate for that? It's not too late. <laughs> it's not too late. It's not too late. <laughs> <laughs> not too late i mean it's pretty crazy the fast like i've had filmmakers on this show before and some of them very young and and it can be done rather quickly if it's just like you said earlier you just have to believe in yourself and yeah you have to you've got I, the connection I, in place I now for, i think for a filmmaker you have to have a really great story and i'm i'm not good at inventing stories i'm really good at writing about art and thinking about art and talking about art and explaining art but I'm not a good fiction writer. I, I, I'm much more kind of like factual stuff. So th that's, uh, that's the problem. Maybe, maybe I would just like to work with them and give lectures on all their work. That would be fun. Or you could, you could combine with somebody else who's a great writer and has the story, and then you could just help them make it. Yeah, we could do that. But th those three guys are just are – kind of, yeah, Stephen Sondheim could write the libretto. I'm sure that would be great. And Mozart could do the music, and Leonard Bernstein could orchestrate it all, and I could just – yeah. There you go. <laughs> Genius. Well, if, and this is something that I ask all my guests, and it's the best time, uh, my favorite question of the interview. It's the only one that I ask every interview. Please. Michael, if you had to battle Godzilla, how would you use your creativity or talents to defeat that big, crazy bastard? Um. Well, see, I don't think he's a big, crazy bastard. I think he's a misunderstood monster. I always love Godzilla, and I think all that screaming and crying, he's trying to explain to everybody he just wants to be friends. I think I'd take Godzilla to dinner. <laughs> what would you feed something like that? Whatever he wants. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to and a lot of it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, I really appreciated having you on the show, this man. It's been, been awesome. It's been great. Yeah, and, and I, I'm pumped, and it was so interesting listening to all the different topics that we covered from habits 
for artists to curating at Microsoft to to creating that educational program in, in the website form in the gallery and asking, uh, you know, really how to create opportunity for yourself and, and right. things that you have definitely done and, and getting into your morning routine and and everything. It's just been it's just been a light to me to hear that other successful people are doing things like me in the morning and, and it makes all the difference in the world. And, and I love hearing it. So yeah, I'm pumped that, that I had, had the opportunity to have you on the show. And I know that well, we can probably talk Appreciate it. for hours. Uh, we might even have, you know, it's possible we can get you back on in the future and we can continue. This Be happy to. I'm a, I'm a big talker. would love to, but, but yeah, everybody out there literally just get out, do the funky chicken, do something creative, surrender to your passion, you know, break That's the it. rules, but, yeah, break, break the rules, but first break the rulers and right. visualize the outcome. I mean, I can't express that enough. And right. is there anywhere that our listeners can get in contact with you and check out your stuff, Michael? Um, best is the uh, michaelkleinarts.com website. And they can always send me a message through that. Um, and then the gallery, the little gallery, which is um, the little gallery. Because I had to come up with a name because we have a tiny little space upstate and Klein means little in German. So I thought, well, make it the little gallery, um, is another where it's little, little dot gallery. Um, yeah, the little dot gallery, right? Exactly. Little dot gallery, but michaelkleinarts.com is the best way to check out the website. Uh, it's about to get re, um, we're going to re-edit it, uh, in the next few weeks, add some new materials. Um, and then there's a direct link to, to me from there. Very cool. And and do you have, well, obviously put all these links in the show notes. I know you're on Twitter and, and on Facebook. What was what yes. your Twitter, hand, Twitter handle? Uh, that's a good question. I don't handle that. I have somebody who does it. And I don't know what my Twitter handle is. Um, I'll look it up and put it in the show notes as great, well. Great, super. That would be great. Thank you. And, and all, the, all the show notes will be on artsynow.com forward slash okay. Michael Klein and Michael, do you have any favorite uh, closing advice or favorite quotes that you want to leave our listeners with before we say uh, goodbye? Uh, Matisse said that making art requires courage. And I think that he's absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. Making art requires courage. Perfect. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been a blast. I'm fist bumping right now, bringing the heat. And, and I, I just love having conversations like this and networking. So take care of that puppy yours and, and <laughs> good, best of luck to you in the future, man. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Appreciate it. another episode for the books of the arch of her newer now podcast that was the very talented michael klein i hope you all enjoyed it just as much as i did so all you little boys and all you little girls can go tell all your friends share spread the word that is how this show continues to get bigger to reach larger audiences to help change the lives of more people once again thanks a lot for listening and Till next time, ta-ta! Thank you for listening to another episode of The Arch of Her Newer Now. For all the show notes, it's artsynow.com. If you want to be a guest on the show, email me at create at artsynow.com or on Twitter at HB underscore Armstrong. The music? Well, that's shaky feeling. 
Check him out, Ventura, California. Ta-ta! Keep it funky.